Hey, Zach. Hey. So, did you know, DYK, the pharaohs were real jerks for using slaves to build their pyramids, mm. but it's pretty chill that those pyramids exist. Mm. Yeah. So, that's just one of the insights from Kwame Anthony Appiah's 2006 book, 99 Philosophical Errors, Grouillant des mots étrangers. <laughs> Which translates to 99 Philosophical Errors and Infinite Overweening Pomposity. In the uh, U.S., in the U.S., see, that's the, that's the U.K. title. Uh, in the U.S., the book was marketed as Cosmopolitanism, Ethics in a World of Strangers, which I think does reflect the nominal content of the book a bit better than its U.K. title, even if it really fails to capture the spirit, l'esprit, of the book, you know? <laughs> Okay, so let me uh, speak here for the the listener and ask, what the hell are you talking about right now? I'm talking about what this podcast is about. Yeah, so we're in a podcast episode right now. We're I recording that's, it. Yeah, you and I are in the thick of it. And the episode is going to have some content. It's going to have a topic. Uh-huh. And the listener might not have noticed, and they can be forgiven for not noticing, that in your little speech there, you gave the topic of the episode, which is going to be a book. A by a philosopher named Kwame Anthony Appiah called Cosmopolitanism. And you may have also intimated your judgment about this book, right? About the style of the book. Uh, which oh, is no, and the content. Okay. Pompous I did both. and. Um, error ridden. Error. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, so maybe you should explain a little bit more of why we're doing this episode. I mean, how did we get to this point here? Because the listener might think like, oh, okay, so they're talking about a book. Why? Why are they talking about it? Yeah, I think that's a perfectly good response for the listener. I would ask the listener, though, why is he listening to this podcast? He? You know, she, they. I didn't finish, Zach. Okay, yeah. Like, that's one technique you can employ if you ever make those kinds of like gender-exclusive statements. Just make your sentence longer and, and reformulate the whole sentence again with other, with other pronouns. Yeah. Um, I'm getting... Uh, I'm sweating already. Um, so, yeah. So, cosmopolitanism. Um, why are we talking about it? Uh, well, I should mention that I am the culprit, I think, of this podcast. Yeah. But it, it's there are a lot of things I can say why to explain why we're talking about this. I'll start off with all the wrong reasons, and I'll get to the right one at the very end. So, I mean, cosmopolitanism is you know this idea, uh, which I guess we'll try to define more precisely later. But at a very first pass, has to do with um, appreciating the diversity in human culture across the world and, and usually trying to preserve it or respect it or something. And um, I personally have interests in immigration policy. I'm interested in the role of xenophobia in American politics. And in the last election, 2016, we're recording this in 2020, um, the word cosmopolitan actually had a special force. It was a, a slur usually put before coastal elites. And it was, you know, the people that real Americans were railing against these cosmopolitan coastal elites that are ruining our country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those are all like the, the 
high-toned, highfalutin reasons. But really, what happened was I was listening to an Ezra Klein podcast where he interviewed Anthony Appiah or Kwame or yeah. Kwame Anthony Appia. And it was actually a, a really good podcast. It, 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 I thought this guy was so, I don't know. He was, he was a model of a public philosopher. And, uh, then I read the book and I hated it. <laughs> you read the book that the, that episode was based on. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and that podcast itself was also fairly untimely. I think it was, I don't know exactly when it was released, but probably within the last two years and the book came out in 2006. So, uh, we're not, I mean, this is the thing we're, we're going, going to the deep cuts, I suppose. The podcast episode came out in May, 2017. Okay. Now just uh, to fill out the story a little bit, you had mentioned to me that there's this elegant, gorgeous, shimmering podcast episode of the Ezra Klein show about cosmopolitanism. And that I, I should take a look at it because it's, it's so glorious. And I have to say, I wouldn't describe that episode in the same terms, I mean, I listened to it, I followed up your recommendation, and then I actually listened to it again today in preparation for this episode, and I admit, I think it's easy to kind of get lost in some of his, like, impressive phrasing and just his speaking ability, Um, but then after he gets done speaking and you kind of think about, what did he really say there and how was it interesting, at least me personally, I struggled to come up with, (laughs) with much. Uh, but then you said, hey, why don't you read the book and maybe we can do an episode about it. So I acquired a used copy and read it. And I, I kind of feel like we both independently came to the conclusion that this was that this was not particularly great. <laughs> uh, was that, is that right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, I don't think you told me ahead of time that this was going to be bad. Uh, yeah, I think I just sent a random message from nowhere, just apologizing for oh. <laughs> recommending the book at one point. But I'd probably but, started it before then. Before but yeah, you, yeah, I think you, you had started it. Yeah. And then I, I, I remember warning you about the final chapter, uh, ahead mm-hmm. of time. Cause I think I kind of, like I finished it ahead of you. Yeah. You sped read you. the book. Yeah. All right. So then, um, that's the story. Cosmopolitanism is an interesting topic. No doubt. I mean, something worth thinking about and reading books about. But if you didn't like the book, and you know, I'm suggesting I didn't particularly care for it either, why do a podcast about it? This is a question I had before we, before we started, before we had this call today. I'm like, is this a podcast born out of the sunken cost fallacy? No, it's born sunk out of the cost. sunk cost fallacy. Yeah, I corrected it, I know. <laughs> but it is. It's born out of the sunk cost fallacy. I mean, a little bit, but I think that... So we just... we. We we went we through the, the effort of reading it. We better damn well get a podcast episode about it. Yeah, that's that's what our listeners deserve. <laughs> Sunk costs. But but if a listener's made it to this point listening, you might as well finish the whole episode. Right, because you don't want to sink your costs. The costs are at the bottom of the ocean. And it's possible that by the end of this podcast, we will have taken them safely to shore. You just That's a possibility. That might happen. This podcast might be worth it. Because, Zach, the thing is that the book, you and I both concur, has its faults. But that doesn't mean that it's not fodder for a scintillating discussion of cosmopolitanism. Right. Okay. So let's, uh, let's, let's have a scintillating conversation. Yeah. After all, that is what Apia says he is advocating here, is conversation. Is conversation and understanding. 
God, we failed at that. I don't know if I really understand. Anyway, so anyway, introduce us to the book here. What is this book about? What is cosmopolitanism? Maybe you can start there. Yeah. Okay. How does Kwame, if we may call him that, which we have been doing, how does he define it? And to him, there's two parts to the definition. There is one, the recognition of our responsibility for every human. And two, the recognition that human beings are different and that we can learn from each other's differences. So I think the first part is pretty straightforwardly ethical because we're recognizing our responsibility for every human. So implicit in that is that every human being has worth. And the second part, it's really, to me, the essence of cosmopolitanism because I think you can pretty easily, I think even a a parochial human can can recognize some sort of universality of, of human worth, but they might just not take any interest at all in learning about people's differences. So I think it's the second one that's the the spice. It's the unique aspect of uh, cosmopolitanism. What do you think, Zach? And that that second piece is that we're all different and that the difference is good. Yeah. Right? It's something that we should appreciate and learn about and, and not seek to to minimize or change. You know, we shouldn't be working to turn the world in some into some like homogenous soup of of no yeah. cultural I, boundaries. He later gives a very precise formulation of it as universality plus pluralism. So that that's easier to keep in your working memory. So I advocate for that. Yeah. Right. And he also um will give it the bumper sticker definition of cosmopolitan cosmopolitanism equals universality plus difference. Mm. Yeah. And so I think Another way to kind of wrap your your head around the definition is to take the definition and identify two possible opponents to cosmopolitanism, right? There's someone who could argue or, or believe that not everyone matters. So if the claim that everybody matters and we have a moral responsibility to everyone, if that's a necessary condition for being a cosmopolitan, then... If you think that not everyone matters, then then you're not going to be a cosmopolitan. So that's one possible opponent. Another possible opponent is someone who thinks diversity is, is bad. Or maybe, you know, there's only one way to live. Or, you know, the earth should be a monoculture or something like that. Um, and I take it that Kwame is a little bit worried about those latter opponents uh, primarily, right? He thinks that cosmopolitanism has the risk of drifting into this like demand for a kind of like universal uh culture or you know that you know so i admit i really don't understand this and so maybe this can be um something that we discuss but i think a big part of the project of the book is for him is him trying to reconcile universality with an appreciation for difference and he thinks that there's some kind of tendency for conflict here whether he's right about that, I'm not quite sure, or or how exactly uh, he might be right about that. <laughs> if he is, I'm not sure. So, but nevertheless, that was my attempt to to supply a little bit more for what he means, like what his theory is. Okay, yeah, no, I am glad you did that. I hadn't, I puzzled over his definition a little bit, not because it seems obviously wrong, but my biggest struggle with it is like what. What good was brought into the world by that with that definition of cosmopolitanism? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> what good was brought into the world? 
<laughs> what? Same, same thing about this podcast. I hope no one bothers to think that thought. Um, okay. So, and the way I was framing it, which I don't know if it's very helpful or not, was like, what was the necessity in this definition? Like, I, I feel like um, definitions should should cut the world at its joints. That's a phrase people use. And one thing that philosophers do, uh, that some philosophers do, is conceptual analysis. And that's where they take an idea, usually a philosophically relevant but commonly used phrase like knowledge or the verb to know and think about what it really means and and how it will work in philosophical settings and if there are some internal contradictions or what not and the traditional way to go about that is uh, through conjectures and refutations uh, uh, so you you propose a definition and then you look for counterexamples and uh, hopefully you arrive at necessary and sufficient conditions that are agreed to by your philosophical community. And the most classic example of that is Edmund Gettier's, Gettier's, mm-hmm. depending on how French you want to be, his definition of knowledge as justified true belief. So he decomposed knowledge into three things, justification, truth, and belief. And if you have those three things, uh, you have knowledge and if you are uh, missing any one of them, you do not have knowledge. And so that's that's typically what philosophers will do. And it's expanded more recently to things like uh, fucked up and assholes. Mm. Uh, that's <laughs> that's where philosophy is. Two thousand from the two thousand tens on, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, so, getting to the important issues here. Yeah, we've come a long way. Hey, just a fun fact though about Gettier and knowledge. They call the JTB model of knowledge, justified true belief. Just a little bit of, of, of a history lesson uh, on that. Uh, the notion of knowledge as justified true belief traces all the way back to Plato in his dialogue, The Theotetus, which is about knowledge. And in that dialogue, Plato considers the possible meaning of knowledge as justified belief with an account, with an explanation, by which we mean something like justification. But then Plato goes on quite quickly in the dialogue to show why that cannot be the correct meaning of the term knowledge. That's not what knowledge is. And after that, uh, no one really believed that that's what knowledge was. And so we get the whole history of philosophy. No one really believed <laughs> that knowledge is justified true belief until we get to Gettier, who shows that knowledge is not actually justified true belief. And then after his little paper, where he showed that this model of knowledge that no one actually endorsed isn't something that people should endorse, all of philosophy endorsed that model and tried to show why Gettier was wrong or how we can make little small changes to that model in order to respond to Gettier. I find it to be a completely backwards and bizarre just turn of events in the history of philosophy. Only after something has been thoroughly refuted did it become accepted, more or less, or you know, adapted on the margins in a way to, to avoid Gettier's refutation. But that was a bit of a digression. Uh, but I just wanted to have that out in the world just to, to make a point about how bizarre a lot of, of uh, epistemology, which is the field that studies these kinds of things, uh, how bizarre that, that field is nowadays.
Yeah. That was fucked up. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. Uh well, another uh a point about his his definition is that maybe I can lay out what I see the book doing. Like this is like a holistic statement, right, about the book Cosmopolitanism. It might be useful for the listener to kind of keep this in mind. So you get these two ingredients to the definition, universality and difference. And kind of what the book does is I think there's two or three main sections of the book, e- even though they're not divided. It's just it's just 10 chapters in a row. There are no bigger divisions about parts or anything. It's that the first kind of chunk of the argument is about him trying to show that universality is true. Like what he means by universality is good and we should accept it. And he does that by taking aim at what he calls positivism, um, which is a, a theory, you know, commonly mentioned in, in philosophy, uh, which often is said to like reduce down to relativism where um, there is no universality of value or, or you couldn't make that kind of argument and accept other people to endorse it. And so Kwame responds to those people. And then the, the second part is him trying to make good on his claims about difference and showing that there might be certain tendencies in, in culture or, or, you know, political drives that seek to undermine the value of difference and this conversation comes about through a kind of odd discussion about cultural patrimony um of like whether museums like colonial museums like the british museum should like give back the artifacts that it stole or looted or from from you know african countries or asian countries and things like that um and then i i think i may mention this the last chapter is particularly bizarre um not exactly a conclusion but that's something like a third part of the book and so in general the book goes here's my claim about cosmopolitanism it has two aspects first part of the book is about demonstrating the first aspect the second book second part is about demonstrating the second what do you think about that i think it's good i just wish the viewers could have seen the way you're gesturing he was like very he was, Zach was placing the different parts of the book in physical space. It <laughs> uh, yeah. cannot be not re- replicated in the the audio medium. My apologies. Yeah, no, it's okay though. But I think we can work with this definition. I mean, it's fine. It's fine. Okay, but but like I said, here I think is the is the philosophical oddity about you know the puzzle that I don't I, I don't quite understand yeah. is that there is at least on first blush some kind of inconsistency in his formulation universality plus difference if you just take it on the meanings of those words right this kind of i I think it's meant to evoke a little bit of tension universality plus difference he's kind of trying to play with that tension but then the actual like philosophical substance here is that he thinks that if universality implies a kind of impartiality right? It's like all human beings matter equally. And so we have no like partial obligations by which I mean, there's no partiality. Like there's nothing special about your neighbor, uh, as compared to someone across the world. He thinks that that might undermine the value of difference or something like that. Um, now I admit, I don't, I don't quite see the problem there and he doesn't come out and say that directly, but I, I suspect that that's kind of what he's up in arms about. No. You look suspicious. No, no, no. I, uh, I just want to. I just want to accept his definition for a large part of this podcast for for now. I wasn't I proposing. I wasn't proposing rejecting it. Yeah, 
I, okay. I, I was trying to say what he did in his next step. Like, what philosophical problems does his definition pose? Yeah. So, I mean, we can talk about, I mean, the thing that he, I think that he's doing with this part, the thing that I think he's doing with this definition is specifying that there's some nebulous, perhaps, worth to every human being, some value to their life, but that the way the way lives are carried out can be radically different, and they can be carried out according to substantially different values, but those value differences don't undermine the intrinsic value in any given human, and those and the more particular values that are specific to localities and cultures and languages, perhaps, are, well, probably not languages, um, because the values he's talking about are more like ways of life. In any case, uh, that those values demand respect inherently. That's the way I see it. So I don't. So this thing about partiality to neighbors is something that we'll probably come back to. Partiality to neighbors, partiality to the people of one's own family or community or state or whatever. Well, we can come back to that. But I don't think that he's invoking that right here. At least I didn't see that. Time out. I make you look like a fool. Are you gonna? Are you gonna? You should leave in the part where you say "time out." Make you look like a fool. In fact, we can just keep all of this in. Okay. I can narr- narrate what's happening right now. Zach is derisively looking at the text. Yeah. Now he's made eye contact. So he's come back the, to the microphone. In his uh, introduction. <clears throat> oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> On page XVII, uh, 17 of the introduction. What is that in English? Okay, 17. Um. He says, uh, you know, after laying out a couple of different versions of cosmopolitanism, and he, he talks um, on the previous page about the impartialist version, right? Um, meaning that there's nothing special about your neighbors. You owe everything equally to all human beings. He says the position worth defending, in other words, I think a statement of his, his thesis really, might be called in both senses a partial cosmopolitanism. In both senses, meaning that he's not going all the way down, like the full consequences of, of like universal strict cosmopolitanism. And he's not going all the way down there in the specific sense that he's rejecting the impartiality aspect of it. Right. And he's going to, he's going to advocate partiality cosmopolitanism, meaning that, yep, everyone matters. Everyone's important. Everyone has value. However, you do owe something special to your neighbors and your uh, family, your town. Okay, so to save myself, <laughs> um, my point was that that is not in this definition. So he does think that. Um, and we're going to talk about that when we get to the infamous 10th chapter. Okay, yes. But, but it's not inherent in the definition of cosmopolitanism. But okay, yeah, okay. I, I agree with that. But but what I'm saying is, like, these are the stakes that I think he's dealing with. He thinks universality is in tension with the difference notion. And he thinks, I'm inserting a little bit here, but I think he believes that or he's worried about that because universality might get translated into impartiality. And that impartiality threatens difference. Yeah. And so 
instead of universality plus difference, it might be universality. And then like in parentheses, you know, which might equal impartiality plus difference. And, you know, and if we insert that, if we insert the impartiality, then the equation might fall apart. Yeah, no, I think that that you're, you're right. That, that is a tension. Okay. I acknowledge it. And let me just mark right now where I don't understand why there's any tension at all there. <laughs> but, uh, okay. No, I can't just let you say that. What, what, imagine uh, Kwame's listening and uh, you have to explain to him very clearly in no uncertain terms why there is no tension, where he thinks there is tension. He seems to be confusing two different claims. One, that I care about everyone equally. And two, I want everyone to be the same. But those are obviously, I think, different different claims, right? I think you could have a, a view of obligation that is impartial, right? I owe, there's nothing necessarily special about my responsibilities to my neighbors. Um, I owe just as much, perhaps, to someone on another continent. But that doesn't at all imply that I should be changing the person on another continent to be more like me. Or that I should change to be more like the other person on the other continent, or I should be erasing boundaries between borders. I just don't quite get how how we're supposed to get there at all. Oh my god! I just realized the extent to which I misunderstood you, Zach. Oh this really? Is like a night. It's what like a nightmare. What? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It's a it's a beautiful nightmare. Um, because we're conversing and we're understanding. So I thought the tension was between everyone's moral worth, and presumably that would be equal. No, I mean, that's impartiality. Everyone's worth. There's some sort of inherent way in which everyone has the same worth. That with, um, I would actually treat my neighbor, like my neighbor has more of a, can make a legitimate claim on me more than a person across the world. So even though they are of the same inherent worth, I actually owe more to another one, and I'm more responsible for that person's well-being, despite mm-hmm. the fact that they're worth the same thing. Yeah, yeah. That's that's why I would see attention. Um, I don't. I didn't think he was ever claiming that worth has anything to do with uniformity of lifestyle. Okay. Yeah. No, I think that's good. Um, I didn't focus on the notion of universality because I think the claim that we have responsibilities to everybody or that everyone matters. Sometimes you'll say everyone matters. That I think is just like hopelessly vague, right? It could mean that everyone matters to someone, to someone or other, right? Um, it could mean that everyone matters, but not equally, right? Or if, if, as he says at the beginning, we have responsibilities to everybody, doesn't mean that we have the same responsibilities to everybody or the same amount of responsibilities to everybody. It's just like an immense amount of, of work would need to go into understanding exactly what kind of ethical claim he's making is. But I think you can have a really, you know, you can have a, a partial ethics, an ethics of partiality where I owe special obligations to my, to my neighbor and not to others and still think that everyone matters, that, you know, that we have responsibilities to, to everybody. I mean, th- there's no conflict at all between this claim, everybody matters, and a ethics of partiality. I mean, almost everyone's ethics, like in the ethical world, in moral philosophy, involves partiality. And yeah. no one's ethics <laughs> involves a claim that there are people in the world who don't matter. 
right? Yes. And so, like, it, I, yeah, I'm like, wh- who is he attacking here? I, I suppose that's not why I, I focused on on that aspect of it. I found the universe, universality claim to be quite minimal or so abstract that, you know, to be uncontroversial. Sure, I agree with that. And that is, I think, a, a fair... That's actually what I was getting at when I was emphasizing the second part of his definition was the part that was actually possibly contributing something. I mean, the first mm, part that... Yeah. Uh, but he does, I, I mean, he does say our responsibility for every human being. Now, that's something that a libertarian wouldn't agree to, for example. I mean, I think he, it's a positive responsibility to people. People have rights that are not simply negative rights. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that we cannot interfere with them. People have positive rights that we should confer. Sorry, I saw that Zach's, I saw your squinty eye, Zach. Um, he, well, maybe. I, I just don't really see him making those claims i mean i guess we might have a responsibility to understand them or you know to appreciate other cultures or something like that but what are some of those things what are those po- positive responsibilities i he, I mean, he, he lists them out they're not i can't remember the list exactly but they're pretty s- standard like second generation human rights stuff like health care school uh, being able to participate in cultural activities, uh, just self-actualization type human rights. We are getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. I mean, this is some tenth chapter stuff, but he okay. does say that those things are human rights, and you know that's that's cool. <laughs> All right, so maybe we can refocus a little bit. I mean, do, do we can you refocus? Do you in, endorse my my kind of layout of the book as as the two or, or three parts? Yeah, I think it is. But I'm tempted to just say yes, because I'm really champing at the bit to talk about people masturbating in marketplaces. Um, like, that's what I really want to get to. Okay, let's do it. So, one thing that I feel like I can really add to listeners' lives in this podcast is explaining where the term cosmopolitanism comes from. I mean, because, you know, if you aren't on the up and up, you might think cosmopolitan, Neapolitan, what's the difference, right? Turns out there's a difference. So cosmopolitanism was found, I mean, the word cosmopolitan, not quite in the English form, but close, was first found in book six of Diogenes Laertius's Lives of the Eminent Philosophers. So he was writing about all the philosophers from the pre-Socratics up to, I'm not quite sure who, and he gets to the cynics, and the second cynic he discusses is another Diogenes, one who lived like six centuries before him, uh, Diogenes of Sinope, a small little ville on the Black Sea, and... It, the entire context is someone asks this Diogenes of Sinope uh, where he's from. And instead of giving a straightforward response, Diogenes, who's the real wit, responds, I am a citizen of the world, which translates into English uh, in, as cosmopolitan, because the Greek would be something like cosmopolites. And that's pretty much it. So... There's that, but this Diogenes character of Sinope is quite interesting. He was homeless. He lived in a clay jar in Athens, in the Agora. 
he was exiled from Sinope for debasing currency. And he uh, was prone to exposing himself in public and masturbating in the uh, marketplace. And, and when people would comment on it, they would he would say, if only it were so easy to soothe hunger by rubbing my empty belly. So You're leaving out the most important part of this guy's life, the most fascinating aspect. What is it, Zach? How he died. Well, okay. Do you remember this? Well, I mean, listen, Zach, are we going to... No, you tell them. I mean, I'm just going to say. Yeah, you're right. Fine. Okay. How did he die, Zach? Reportedly, he died just by holding his breath until he died. <laughs> Committed suicide <laughs> by refusing to breathe. Yeah. All right. So I just want to say that if you're at all worried about calling yourself a cosmopolitan, you are in good company because you're in the company of a man who masturbated in public. He smacked people around. That's there are some anecdotes and uh, committed suicide by holding his breath. Yeah. And was exiled for debasing currency. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's, that's a great way to start. Yeah. Um, yeah, but there was a long tradition of cosmopolitanism, you know, the Stoic school included, um, and a bit of, you know, that idea comes around with, you know, the enlightenment, uh, enlightenment style thinking, uh, for sure as well. Yeah. But did they whip it out? <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean, uh, yeah, I didn't, I don't mean to get you sidetracked on the history lesson. I'm, I'm here for it. All right. No, that was, that was the end. I just wanted to interject that because it was getting a bit thick and heavy. What we were laying on the listeners there. Okay. All right. It, then it also might help to distinguish a number of different types of cosmopolitanism. Okay. Uh, the most prominent one, really what we've been meaning so far, is moral cosmopolitanism, right? Is that you should think of yourself as a citizen of the world and behave on that basis, something like that. But then another one that I kind of find interesting would be what you might call descriptive cosmopolitanism which is just a statement that you are, as a matter of fact, a citizen of the world. And if you were to just walk up to somebody on the street and say, did you know that you're a citizen of the world? And they said, no, you could just say, well, you are. And uh, you probably would be right. What, in what way? Because, they, because their cell phone was made in China? No, they are a member of the society that takes place on this planet. I see. I see. So it's like we're earthlings. Yeah, right. I see. Yeah. Um, In order to be a citizen of any individual country, you must be a citizen of the world. You know, it just follows. Logically. Yeah. All right, yeah. So you got moral versus descriptive cosmopolitanism. You might think of just a political cosmopolitanism, which is the notion that we should be moving politically to develop a global government, like a a league of nations or a federation of states or something like that. Cosmopolitanism as a political reality at the level of governments. You might think of cultural cosmopolitanism, which is the notion that, you know, it's perhaps wrong or, or, you know, kind of culturally backwards to be attached to your particular culture or something. You shouldn't have any, like any preference or partiality towards your own culture or something like that. Or you might think of something like economic cosmopolitanism, which is probably just the same thing as globalism. But there you go. Those are some possible uh, cosmopolitan-isms. 
Right. So if you're at the local cosmopolitan meeting, mm-hmm. you'll probably need to defend which flavor you are. Exactly. I'm talking, I'm saying you, listener. Right. What would you say about an aesthetic cosmopolitanism? Hmm. What would that be? So it's someone who takes an active interest in other cultures while not forgetting their own identity. The way, I mean, the the emblem of this for me is when I was in Arkansas, Fayetteville, Arkansas, where you and I Mm, met. The city of lights. (laughs) The city of a few lights. Um, You know, Arkansas is a politically troubled state. There's a lot of poverty. Um, but Fayetteville was kind of a liberal enclave and Fayetteville also offered quite a few hiking activities and I'm not trying to uh, be a tourism, uh, advocate for Arkansas, but there was some <laughs> amount of pride, like local pride, uh, among definitely like left leaning people there. And I even managed to see a few people with tattoos of the silhouette of the state, uh, on their on their arms, and I mean, I think if I were to ask them, uh, you know, are, are you like uh, some Arkansas chauvinist? Do you think we should like you know appropriate all the resources to the United States and blah blah? blah they'd say, no, no, no. I'm just you know, I uh, I'm from here, or I moved here, and I really like it, and I just want to you know be proud of that. Uh, but at the same time, they're of a relatively high socioeconomic status uh, compared to other Americans and other Arkansas residents and uh so they probably traveled and they probably enjoy other cultures and they are are happy to watch a documentary on on teachers in in sweden or uh a trip to machu picchu you know and so they do this but it's not it doesn't stem from any any particular moral view like if you ask i mean they'll just be as morally dumb as as the rest of us that you know there's no like ethical view that you know we should spend more money on foreign aid or that we should restructure the global economy to be more favorable to developing countries, or that we should protect lo- local cultures from uh, the, the ravages of globalization. There's nothing like that. There's just the appreciation of the difference uh, while being proud of being from a, a certain place. So that, that's actually, to me, what, what being cosmopolitan is about. Uh, and that's kind of one of the gripes. It's local pride. But not in the chauvinistic or propio yeah. way. It's sort of this informed, it's this idea that, you know, we, we have a provenance, it, it shaped us, and we don't need to be ashamed of it, just aware of it. And, and Kwame also talks about this, but it's the hope that other people feel the same way about where they're from. Mm-hmm. And to me, that, that's purely aesthetic. There's nothing really moral about it. Uh, I don't think that there's any injunction to anyone else that they should be that way. So it's also very idiosyncratic or it doesn't make any claim on other people. Anyway, that that to me is actually the most compelling as a definition of cosmopolitanism. I'm not saying it, it's the most important. You know, I, I think uh, it doesn't really matter to people in poor countries uh, if you're a cosmopolitan in the aesthetic sense or not. It matters to them if we restructure the global economy. So what I mean to say is it's not the most important in any ethical sense, but as a definition, it's the one that resonates most with me. Right. So if I don't feel any particular pride about where I'm from, you know, I don't have a tattoo of the state of Missouri on or something like that. Um, and I'm from Kansas city and there's like an immense amount of Kansas city pride. I mean, there's, there's a whole industry of, uh, about demonstrating how much Kansas City is cool. 
more than a lot of other cities in my experience. But if I don't really partake in that, if I don't feel that, am I not a cosmopolitan? No, I think you can be. I think that this is something that Kwame talks about. Okay. That that people should be, I mean, it's almost like a, a logical implication. Like if you think you want to go to places and see people enact proudly their local culture, um, it's slightly inconsistent of you to not do the same. I mean, and I don't, I don't really feel like attached to that part of it, but again, it just compels me most aesthetically. But no, I'm, I'm the same way. I mean, I, I am also from Kansas City and I don't know much about it. So <laughs> I do have a sticker on my computer though. Okay. Wait. So, I mean, can you say a little bit more about how this aesthetic conception of cosmopolitanism relates to Kwame's claims or, you know, related to the, to the definition or, or what part in his argument does that aesthetic conception play? I don't think, no, I think Kwame and I think of it very differently. So okay, I don't think okay, it plays Cause any- I, I was worried there. I'm like, I feel like I'm missing something here. <laughs> Because I didn't see that so directly in the in the book. No, no, and that that was one of the things that I disliked about the book. But it, it's not something I can dislike and take that dislike seriously. Because who am I to say what book he should have written, other than a different one than he, the one he wrote? <laughs> <laughs> okay. But we should probably move on. I mean, who cares about my idea of cosmopolitanism? No, no, it's an interesting thought. I mean, I, I mean, there's. Maybe just a couple other follow-up questions about that as an attempt, perhaps, to bridge bridge the gap between, you know, that aesthetic conception and a moral conception. And in general, I'm one, wondering about if there are any moral values embedded in that aesthetic conception. Because sometimes that, like, kind of local pride has a little bit of, like, a chip on it, on, on your shoulder kind of vibe to it, right? Like, you know, someone in Arkansas really loves Arkansas, but they're very aware of the fact that arkansas is like looked down upon by a lot of other people kansas city is a city but it's it's small it's a you know moderate sized city and how how could it compete with the uh meccas of culture you know on the coasts or something like that i remember when i go back to kansas city um i'm always just struck by the coffee culture i mean the people take coffee incredibly seriously i mean it's only in like kansas city that i've found coffee shops that like really will judge you for wanting cream or milk or something in your in your coffee not that i would ever take either of them of course but um nevertheless <laughs> when you walk in those coffee shops it's like these people take this very seriously and yet i live in los angeles and i go to coffee shops and they're serious coffee shops too but there's just not that level of of concern i mean like it's and, and i i hypothesized that this was because los angeles isn't insecure about itself. Like they're not worried about having to develop this image of being a coffee culture to the world or to visitors or something like they know they're Los Angeles. They know people want to come here. Right. And so we don't have to manufacture these like artificial attractions around like cultural values. Whereas Kansas city maybe has a bit of a chip on its shoulder. Like we need something, we need a draw here. We know the Royals aren't going to do it. Right. And so let's develop this coffee culture and show people like how, we're on like that we're a real player here yeah and so it's a culture like born out of an insecurity through comparing itself to like more serious cities you know quote unquote footnote I footnote got, one yes <laughs> the kansas city royals are a professional baseball team yeah that despite winning the 2014 world series oh, 2015 
uh, have performed exceptionally poor, <laughs> poorly ever since. <laughs> and before were terrible. Um, okay. So I, I feel like I kind of got lost. I, I lost what I was going to ask there, but, uh, yeah, but- I think so. The chip on the shoulder. I don't know. I mean, if I, I think that that actually might be true. Yeah, because like I was saying, uh, and this is not going to have any re- uh, resonance with people outside the United States. But I mean, Arkansas is definitely a looked down upon state. Yeah. And so if you are an otherwise like very obviously liberal person with a tattoo of Arkansas, that's definitely like some sort of middle finger, and I, I see that and. That's that's to me. That's fine though, and I don't. I I mean, it's descriptively. I think you're right, but I don't think it takes anything away from the whole idea of being proud of where you're from. I mean, I think people from New York, which is one of those cultural meccas, are just as uh, entitled to be proud of where they're from. Yeah, I guess I'm just interested in in that attitude. Like, you know, where exactly does it come from? I mean, what does it entail? I mean, people can be proud of where they're from, but I think it often doesn't. It doesn't stop there. There's some conception of like why this place is special and like why they're a good person and an interesting person as a result of where they've come from. And that it's an advantage that they came from this place. Yeah. But you can also have like a very existential view of like it's, you know, it's all accidents, but it's accidents that we try to make meaningful through a narrative. Right. I, I, <laughs> I worry that there's something kind of cynical in there, right? It's like, oh, I just happened to be born in Kansas City. Um, Speaking for you, I wasn't born in Kansas City, but uh, how can I interpret that fact right, in a way that makes me sound interesting and, and cool? I, w- I wasn't born in New York City. That maybe well, would have been better, but I don't want to believe that. And so I'm going to make <laughs> Kansas City really into something really cool. Is that cynical or is that delusional? I don't, I don't, I don't know. Is it cynical? I don't know. Okay, I mean, I, I, honestly, I don't know. I haven't really spent any time thinking about this, like, aesthetic cosmopolitan conception. Or, or, or more accurately, I haven't really thought much about this, like, pride of your hometown or something like that. Like, why exactly people hold that, hold that attitude. But um, I was just kind of speculating there. Perhaps a listener can let us know why it was best to be from where you're from. Yeah, no, that's not exactly how I said it. But I don't really, I don't want to die on that hill, as they say. Okay. Okay. So yes, should we move to, uh, well, let's move to another topic. So one thing that I thought we could talk a little bit about is what is implied by the subtitle of the book. It's ethics in a world of strangers. So one significant thread that goes throughout this book is ethics. And he really takes it from the ground up. I mean, I think that if you were teaching an ethics class, I mean, you could assign this book um, as an introduction to ethics. So I think that's one thing that actually was fairly off-putting about the book um, was that it was a lot longer than it needed to be. And I don't think he really gave a, a precise ethical theory in the end anyway, partially because he wants to say and I think he's right about this, uh, that humans are fairly bad at giving explanations for what they do, for why what they did was right. And some, they're very bad at giving the practical principles of, of their actions. And so he has this, this motto, the, the primacy of practice. 
you know, we are embedded in life ways. We have certain relations we're used to. We have certain actions we habitually commit. And, um, you know, if called upon, we can throw up some post hoc rationalizations, but they are just that. They are post hoc rationalizations. And so this idea, which I, I think is right, but I don't know, I don't really know what he does with it. I mean, he wants to say that, um, ultimately, I mean, it's kind of a conversation stopper. Um, in the sense of we arrive at these bedrock values and we need to humbly recognize that, you know, we're going to be BSing people if we really pretend like we know what our principles are. And just a a few other like pieces to put on the table is he throws out like kind of some philosophical jargon to basically make the point that it's possible for people to appear to be speaking in the same moral language but are actually using terms differently um and yes, he he has his levels of disagreement yes right right yeah so this is one of them right where um we might be using our, our language differently i mean that's that's possible um and that would cause di- disagreements or lack of progress i suppose uh, or um we might agree on our language but disagree about whether words apply to a particular case. Um, But then also, and I think this might get closest to what you're, um, what you're trying to suggest is that sometimes like we agree on, on the words and, but we just have different moral judgments. Like we're just not going to agree. There's no amount of like defining terms that we could do that would resolve our, our disputes. Yeah, and I think that is maybe why he comes up or ends up with this, to me, rather trite, but perhaps it's like trite in the same way that some profound things are trite. Uh, this He writes this trite saying that we want to reach understanding. Like that's the goal of our conversation, which are two of the bywords of this book, conversation and understanding. Yeah, we, through like through discussing our moral disagreements, we are going to become better at living with each other, like living among each other. Yeah. I mean, and that's nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, some people might change their minds. I mean, he's open, he's open to that, but it's foolish to expect everybody to change their minds. Right? You know, foolish to think that you can convince the whole world to adopt your moral judgments and moral language. Yeah. But I think that, the, the the moral suasion. He's pessimistic about moral suasion, as they say. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I don't really have much to say about that, other than that it is a prominent part of the book. And uh, it was in the book. And this is a podcast about the book, so <laughs> I said it. There it is. Zach, what's next? What do you have? What's, like, the thing that's burning in your belly that you need to say? Well, we should probably say a little bit about his uh, conversation about cultural patrimony. He he has a kind of like a couple chapters that read a little bit like op-eds. Like they, they feel kind of a little time-bound. They're not as evergreen as I kind of would have hoped in a book like this. But yeah, he, he engages in the debate of like whether Western museums that are in colonialist countries should give the art, give the artifacts back to, um, you know, to, where, to where, the, where the countries found them. And he essentially says no. 
uh, the, uh, the museum should keep them and instead should enable more people to be able to enjoy these pieces. And that perhaps these countries, instead of these kind of like marginalized you know, countries, the, the countries that have been on, on the wrong side of the colonialist push, instead of fighting to get the pieces back, they should allow the other countries to keep them as a, as a, a donation uh, to, to the world, a cosmopolitan donation. Honestly, I found this a kind of shocking, <laughs> shocking conclusion. But this is seems to be what he thinks. He thinks all museums should be kind of testaments to cosmopolitanism. Uh, that something would be lost if if you went to Ghana and you s- saw only art and and artifacts that are from Ghana, and if you went to the the British Museum in London and you only saw British pieces, uh, that that would be a shame. What did you think about how he uh, how he came down on this issue? Yeah, to be honest, I was quite shocked at, I was surprised, we'll say. Shocked has a moral dimension to it that I don't want to, I don't want to convey. But I was very surprised for a man from Ghana, presumably a pretty liberal guy, to be arguing for the non-repatriation of the vast majority of the world's uh, artifacts, uh, cultural, anthropological artifacts. I mean, but... You know, he does provide justifications that I think that that make sense. I mean, whether or not they're the most weighty, just you know, the most weighty reasons, and therefore like the triumphant reasons, I don't know. But they are reasons, nonetheless, that are like not completely specious. So, one of them is that these works belong to the world, which I think, like like the world's culture, which I think falls out of being cosmopolitan. And then he points to the fact that a lot of these works were made by artists who were themselves very cosmopolitan. They were influenced by the world culture. Like, I mean, I think, you know, modernism, he doesn't talk about modernism, I don't think, specifically, but that was a very international movement. And so just because an Italian has this particular futurist painting, you know, it's difficult to say that, oh, that's Italian. I mean, I think someone from Sardine, a farmer from Sardinia would think nothing of that and has nothing to do with that, whereas a person from Berlin probably has a lot more to do with it. So he points out that a lot of these works are very international. Uh, yeah, he one. makes a similar point about how just because a piece of art came from a culture that was located in the same land as you currently occupy doesn't mean that it's part of your culture, right? There are like ancient cultures that are not that are not the contemporary cultures, you know, in, in the same country. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about that is so one example he gives is uh, Norse culture, and you know, say the particular artifact is found in Sweden. You know, and the, the Norse people weren't Swedish people. Like, they yeah, weren't. Yeah. So it makes no sense for the Swedes to say, oh, that's our culture, because it really doesn't. And what's interesting is that in that case, you know, if you don't think about it long, the Swedes' claim would be pretty intelligible. You'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, Norse, Swedes, I don't know, they're all up there, and it was found there, so cool. But I think if uh, it would be <laughs> it would be quite the, uh, the Twitter shitstorm if, like, we were to claim, like, Native American art. But but it also but yeah it also brings up the the colonial aspect of this. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of different valence or a different sense if he's making the argument about like an African country that was subject to a couple centuries of of colonial rule uh, and in you know that involved taking artifacts and putting them in the British Museum. Like a lot of the same arguments would apply, uh, but 
there's something different about that case. There's something different. I mean, I think it's just, so um, he has examples of Nigerian museums where pieces just go missing, right? Because if a security guard manages to smuggle out one of those pieces and sell it on the market, he can make some huge factor of his of his yearly salary just by that through that one act and and similarly you know in excavations in in poorer countries you know the the head researcher who's probably from a western industrialized country can you know i i'm not a practicing uh, or even theoretical archaeologist but why not um i don't i won't answer that question so i <laughs> I appreciate it, though. I genuinely appreciate it. I'll think about it. But, you know, they're just the structure of, of power. And then is that such that they will most likely be able to uh, walk away with it? Or at least it probably was that way. I imagine that's changed now. Are you, so uh, there's another aspect of his claim here that I want to mark because it, it could be, I think it's related to my, my ultimate gripe with this book. Uh, an aspect of his argument here about cultural patrimony is that the people like you know a people you know we talk about like the peoples of the world you know mm-hmm. a, a culture as a single entity as a whole he's like that isn't any that there, there's no moral relevance to that like all that really exists in uh, you know in the moral realm are individual people and we should care about their well-being their health a people is nothing morally speaking yes he does say that he did say that <laughs> Right. And so, um, yeah, I want to come back to that as a problem. <laughs> All right. It's time to get to chapter 10, Zach. Okay. Yes. Let's, let's do it. The final chapter. It is the final chapter. And to book. me, the most bizarre and frustrating. I also found it to be bizarre and frustrating. I concur <laughs> on both points. Okay. So what is it about? Uh, well, I have a title on our notes as should we save Kwame from drowning in the pond? Okay. Because he's struggling in this chapter and there's a pond. The pond is the famous pond of Peter Singer, uh, where there's a child in the pond. You're walking by the pond. Presumably you're walking to uh, somewhere nice because you've got a luxury suit on. You've got Italian leather shoes. So you're not Zach, you're not, not a vegan. And yeah, you see this kid and he, he's drowning. And you, you think to yourself, should I save this kid? On the one hand, you know, it, all things considered, uh, not all things considered, ceteris paribus, all things equal, this kid, it would be better if this kid were saved. On the other hand, saving him would entail that I, I ruin this suit. The suit that cost me 450 euros. And these shoes that cost 500 euros. Oh, like I said, Italian, Italian leather. So both of these will be ruined. It's a very, very muddy pond. And the thought experiment is to say what this person should do is obvious. This person should jump in the pond, save the child, close, be damned. That's the, and that's the classic classic thought experiment and the purpose of that thought experiment is then to extrapolate and say actually this is the situation that most westerners probably presumably all of the listeners are in with respect to people in the third world 
We are buying luxury consumer goods, nice suits, nice shoes, iPhones, and we are letting children die, perhaps not in ponds, but maybe of malaria or other diseases that we really could prevent those people from having had, from having gotten. So that's the thought experiment. I think I will go down on record as saying that it's probably the most compelling thought experiment, uh, at least in moral philosophy. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And if, uh, listeners want to dig more into this, they can look up an article by Peter Singer called famine, affluence, and morality. That is the article where he presents that thought experiment and shows why, um, our current everyday life is actually similar in all of the morally relevant ways to that that hypothetical situation yeah and so you can imagine with that fairly radical consequences implications i should say of that that argument uh philosophy moral philosophy since then has been trying to argue against it (laughs) but included in this argument is a claim about impartiality in ethics peter singer thinks that the fact that the child is drowning right in front of you as opposed to in our in situations where we you know we should give charitable donations uh, to a child who is all the way across the planet uh the the distance there is not morally relevant right and presumably closeness proximity makes us partial but proximity is just not morally morally relevant right right yeah that's the, right we yeah. we owe both children equally yeah because they're both of the same moral worth and now Kwame wants to come in here and say, hold on a second. Hold on a minute, he wants to say. <laughs> and I admit that I'm not entirely sure how he does this. <laughs> uh, but here, so let me just read a little bit uh, of the book. Thank you. Um, after Kwame gives a synopsis of Singer's case, he says that um you know what singer is trying to argue for requires you here's the quote quote you know requires you to prevent bad things from happening if the cost is something less awful upon reflection however it's not so clear that the principal even gets the drowning case right saving the child may be preventing something bad but not saving the child might for all we know prevent something worse okay we should we should parse that for a second not saving the child might prevent something worse so just walking on by yeah letting the child drown might prevent something much worse okay yeah how do we know it might yeah i remember reading this and i thought the kid was going to turn into hitler but that's not where kwame (laughs) goes yeah well yeah maybe we should say what kwame says might happen right so he continues after all shouldn't i be busy about saving those hundreds of thousands of starving children And wouldn't selling my suit raise a few hundred dollars? And wouldn't ruining it mean that I couldn't raise those dollars? The principal says that if this kid right here has to drown for me to save my suit for sale so I can save, say, 90 other children, so be it. Though it also leaves me free to let the 90 die if I can find something worse to prevent. Okay. And skipping skipping a few lines, this is kind of the the end of that paragraph. He says... You know, Singer's idea is really a way of saying that you should do the most you can to minimize the amount of badness in the world. I have no idea how I would do that. But there's no reason to think it involves 
bankrupting myself to send a large check to UNICEF. There's bound to be at least one thing I can do with the money that would do more good. The problem would be working out what that was. Yeah, so here's him going on the offensive against Singer in a way that I found find a little perplexing. Um, he seems to be saying that how can we possibly know the consequences of our actions, the outcome, and if we are really interested in doing the most good, the fact that we don't know uh, <laughs> what that would actually be somehow um, undermines um, Singer's Singer's argument here. I, I'm not really sure. Uh, I, th- I think Kwame's point here, you know, if fully extrapolated out, would mean really the end of all ethics. <laughs> uh, everything would just be moral luck. You know, we would just do something, hope for the best, but we don't, we don't know. And because no one can really know, all moral bets are off, that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know. It seems to be neglecting the fact that we can have pretty, pretty good confidence about the, the outcomes of a lot of our actions. And uh, yeah, there are a lot of cases in which we're not really sure and we should be careful in those situations. But there are times when, when um, it's quite easy. You know, we have good reasons to anticipate the outcome of our behavior. It enables us to make moral judgments all the time, hundreds of times a day, thousands of times a day. The world is not so incredibly, you know, random, you know, indeterminate that moral judgment becomes uh, so, so impossible. Yeah, I think that's one part of it. I think another part, and to give him credit, is that the principles we uh, abstract from cases are not automatic. There are different morals we could draw from the same thought experiment. Because if you think about it, when you read it, what happens is you say, okay, here's a situation. Oh, yeah, he definitely needs to jump in the pond, save the child. And then comes the moment where you need to say why he did, like, why he did that and what, what principle we draw from it. And the whole thing about primacy of practice being bad at enunciating principles, I think, plays into this, what he's doing right here. because. He gives that principle, the one that Zach just quoted, uh, about giving until, uh, I forgot what it was. Basically, the idea is you give until it would be worse for you to give than to continue to give. Well, well, yeah, where your life becomes worse than the person that you're trying to help. Yeah, that's, that's one. And then later he goes back and he says, well... Here's another principle that I could draw from it. He says, if you are the person in the best position to prevent something really awful, in this case, the child drowning, and it won't cost you much to do so, do it. Yeah, this is what he says right after the stuff I was quoting. Right. And so I think that on the, on the one hand, that is a salutary point to make that you can have different point, that you can have different morals from the same thought experiment, that it doesn't just fall out automatically. but on the other hand, what he calls his reformulation is kind of similar to what Singer's original point actually was. So the way that I've heard Peter, or Buds, no, the way I've heard Singer talk about it is that what makes this case so obvious is that the cost of one's clothing, even if it's luxury clothing, just doesn't even begin to compete with the life of the child. So it's not even like a, a you know, like the, the child's life just eked out uh, by the by the skin of its teeth, the value of your clothes. It's that it's not even a, a comparison a sane person would make. 
and Peter Singer's point is that you know this is structurally similar to still what we're doing with uh, with our luxury goods uh, while ignoring the suffering of of people in, for example, Sub-Saharan Africa. So Kwame thinks that this is a knockdown, dragout argument against this thought experiment, and he's takeaway from that the the principle that he takes from it is that moralities cannot be too demanding he thinks that this would be way too demanding of us and this is to me as someone who's viewing this from the outside i'm not an ethic i'm not a philosopher i'm certainly not an ethical philosopher but this idea that demandingness of an ethical theory somehow disproves it is probably the most bizarre idea that I see taken seriously. <laughs> oh, it is taken very seriously. Yeah. To me, it's on its face incorrect. I don't understand what a moral view, like why. Anyway, I it's, it's difficult. Some to, people for, think that a moral theory shouldn't make you hate your life or have like a deeply inconvenient life. And, and so if I present you a moral theory and I say it's true, but yet it requires you to be like a, a hermit or, you know, give all your possessions to the poor, you know, aesthetic or something like that, then, then you're entitled to say my moral theory is wrong. Yeah. You know, I'm not a particular fan of Christian apologetics, but one bad argument against them would be that Jesus said we should give all our money to the poor. And I'd say, Oh, he said that that's demanding. So that didn't happen. <laughs> like that, yeah. No one would think that makes any sense. I don't, but one thing, so um, what I want to say about that is, so yes, this is something that philosophers take serious. I mean, some philosophers take seriously this idea that if an ethical theory is too demanding, it's incorrect. But one thing that Peter Singer has pointed out is that demandingness is actually not a facet inherently of a moral theory because he points out if um, wealth were more equally distributed and there weren't extreme poverty in the world, utilitarianism would be far less demanding. So it's the same moral theory. The moral theory hasn't changed one iota, but the features of the world have changed such that it, it becomes, I mean, a radically different theory as far as implications go for your life. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, people, I don't think level, I mean, Zach, you, you would be the expert here, but do people level this against Kant's theory? That it's too demanding? Let me think. Um, By the way, listeners, while Zach is, is cogitating over there, uh, Kant's theory, deontology, is it's typically it's the genre of Kant's theory. So prohibitions feature prominently in, <laughs> in Kant's theory. Uh, I have not seen someone make that objection. I mean, it. I imagine it's there. Here, but... So as many of you listeners may know, there's this thing called No Nut November. Prohibition on uh, prohibition on on masturbation. Jeez, the second be- <laughs> time masturbation's come up here. Okay, and according to Kant, self abuse is absolutely prohibited. So Kant thought basically that no nut November should be twelve months long. <laughs> now every most year. people do not. Yeah, most people and every year, <laughs> most people do not make it through No Nut November. Now, I will take a stand here and say that that onanism, as it's uh, referred to in the medical literature, is an abominable practice, and no one should do it. But it is demanding. I mean, I have met that demand, but it is very demanding nonetheless. So, oh my God, this is. Re- <laughs> I should probably edit all of this out. This is horrible. Um, no, I think I made a very unique 
contribution to moral philosophy um, just now. Now, what's interesting about Kant, though, um, well, I think there's a lot of contemporary Kantians who see Kant as actually not being as fixated on rules and like completely unbending principles as he's usually depicted. I have some of my complaints uh, with some of those you know, contemporary Kantians. But really interestingly, if a listener wants to, to check this, they can. They should go and look at the very beginning of section two of Kant's groundwork for the metaphysics, metaphysics of morals, where he considers the question of whether anybody has ever done anything that has moral worth. This is his phrase, moral worth. He's like, the goal of ethics is to have a good will. That means you perform actions or your will has you know, moral worth. Kant says it's, it's perfectly possible that no one in history has ever done anything with moral worth. Well, so people seem to be failing quite substantially in the sense that you've never done anything <laughs> fully correctly. Um, he's like, but he says like, Oh, I, I think a lot of stuff humans have done have been in accordance with duties. Uh, but whether anyone has ever done anything out of duty He's not so sure. Only God could know. And so, I don't know. I mean, you can maybe interpret that as him kind of biting the bullet on some kind of demandingness claim, but but I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of people see Kant, Kant's theory as so complicated that we can interpret him as as suggesting a life for us that isn't as as hellish as like a utilitarian would. Um, we don't have to give away all of our money for uh in order to be a kantian utilitarian is mm-hmm. a little bit harder it is although i would say that utilitarians are probably among the more practical philosophers and so they they recognize that uh no one would do it no one would give any money if the if the injunction were to give all your money or so much yeah, money yeah. that you in some way equal with the people who are receiving it now but you, you made an interesting point uh before that i want to about no, not November. <laughs> Definitely not that one. Um, that the demandingness isn't a, like an inherent feature of utilitarianism, right? As a theory, yes. Utilitarianism only seems demanding because of how much we've fucked up the world, right? Yes. <laughs> All of the things we screwed up, and if we just if we made the world better, a more equitable place where we were able to meet everyone's needs, and all of a sudden, the theory would not seem demanding at all. I think that's a really interesting point. Well, yeah, I would just say Peter Singer made that point. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, I made it here, so I want some credit. I'm giving but, you credit. Take it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a, just a very bizarre chapter, and I, what bothers me about it is that in the end, I feel like he doesn't give a very interesting account of our moral obligations to to others. I mean, if this is a book that defines cosmopolitanism primarily as recognizing a recognition of our responsibility to others the fact that he ends the book by radically minimizing those demands is very bizarre it's utterly bizarre to me i mean there's no mention so peter singer a great guy he thinks that we owe the the poor a lot as individuals and as nation states there are philosophers think about how the economy should be restructured to to favor developing countries as i mentioned there are people who argue for open borders as a way for people in developing countries to improve their lives and and in kwame just doesn't talk about any of these he's just kind of ends with some nebulous stuff about well you know nation states are the way we've decided to live and they're the primary 
guarantors of these rights and you know maybe just try to do what you can to like i don't know talk to your government and get them to do more right stuff and i don't know that's kind of it what i found really interesting about it is where he ends up he's like oh well instead of just giving money to charities you know we should be thinking more at the policy level what if the best way to help people isn't to donate the money we made from selling our suits or something to to people, but should be about helping a country be a more effective governing body, you know, like that kind of thing. And in the end, he ends up depicting his position as very much using terms very much like Singer would. He's like, you know, instead of just giving our money away, we should be more intelligent. Or he he says we should consider our, our actions more intelligently than that. You know, consider a wider scope of possible actions that might help not simply think in terms of charitable giving. And I'm like, that is exactly what someone like Peter Singer would say. Yeah, we need to subject our possible actions to as much analysis as we can and focus on what is most likely to do the most good. Uh, we shouldn't be ignoring possible you know, policy changes or ways to help other governments um, help their citizens. Uh, but we also need to consider, you know, those big picture changes like policies next to like more immediate interventions, you know, like charitable giving, and then calculate which one do we think is going to be more effective, right? And there are ways to do that. And I think Peter Singer is often considered to be the founder of a moral movement that focuses on that, those kinds of moral calculations. That movement is known as? Effective altruism. Boom. There you go. So I think I started the chapter thinking, wow, he's kind of critiquing effective altruism here. But then he ends on page 171 with essentially a statement of effective altruism. And so I, uh, yeah, there's another reason for my perplexity at this uh, final chapter. Yeah, it's almost as if he kind of had a vague recollection of the pond argument. And then he wrote a bunch of stuff against it. And then he kind of, then maybe he like read Singer and did some backtracking, but he didn't want to remove the chapter because it was like provocative. I don't know. Yeah. All right. So why don't we, why don't we transition to some final thoughts? Uh, Because we've been, uh, we've been going for a while here. Do you have any uh, more kind of general uh, takeaways here now that we've kind of walked through the, the book? I do have some thoughts. So we've railed on this book pretty hard. I should say, I mean, there are some there are some things you can walk away with. There are some interesting descriptions of life in Ghana, and I don't know. I mean, some of it is a bit journalistic, but you know, journalism is is interesting. Uh, but uh, so I don't know. I mean, obviously, I'm trying to be as positive as I can, and it's not coming out extremely positive. But I just want to say that in one way, he was a victim of bad moral luck. So he published this in 2006. And I, it was pretty soon thereafter that effective altruism became a thing. And uh, Peter Singer was always famous. I mean, well, famous since the 1970s. But uh, he became more famous, uh, I think. That's my impression. And I, I think that a lot of things that he wrote in here, he could not have written had effective altruism been a movement before. So, so yeah, so he's kind of a victim of bad luck. Uh, one thing that... I found extremely lacking in the book was his insight into social dynamics because, uh, and it's relevant for this book because what he was ultimately trying to say was, you know, how can we, how can we interact with people to create 
mutual respect and toleration. And, and I don't, I never got the sense that he really dug into that and really thought about these types of things. And um, and, I mean, it's fine. He's a philosopher. He doesn't, it's not a social science book, but given that there were a lot of practice and there's a lot of practical stuff about how people should interact, I thought you kind of become uh, obligated to have some, I mean, relatively deep knowledge of the subject, or at least ask people who do have very deep knowledge of the subject about these things. And yeah, and I didn't see that. So that was kind of a, that was kind of a, a lack in the book. And I guess the the last thing that I should say that I mean what really rubbed me the wrong way about the book I think was its pomposity combined with like a lot of dad joke parentheticals and then some just really trite recommendations and then there was the tenth chapter where it, there was some interest uh, uninteresting I should say quibbling with the pond thought experiment. So that those things just combine to give me a negative impression. So, you know what, reader, if you don't mind a lot of uh, words in French that basically are just there to highlight that the author is uh, a polyglot, uh, and if you don't mind asides that contribute nothing to the text, and if you don't mind um, some trite sayings, and if you don't mind... Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, maybe perhaps disingenuous or un- uninformed quibbling with thought experiments, then you might enjoy the book. <laughs> wow, blurbs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I do think you make a, a good observation that if you were to strip out all of like the vignettes and the anecdotes and stuff, the book would be quite short. I mean, there are times where he, you know, he gets done with it with one of these stories, and I'm like, oh, I forgot. He's you know, he's making an argument here. Um, but nevertheless, I, I do think a lot of those stories, they're meant to be some kind of contribution to his thesis, right? I mean, he is advocating for con- conversation about other cultures. An aspect of cosmopolitanism is learning about others and you know, learning to appreciate those cultures, even if you don't really a- agree with their customs. And so when he's telling you about all these like customs in Ghana, I think it's supposed to be a contribution to this. The book is supposed to be an exercise in the cosmopolitanism that he's advocating. Nevertheless, yeah, it can get a little burdensome after a while. Uh, but anyway, my uh, final point, and I hinted at this earlier about um, Kwame's claim that there is no like such thing as there's no like moral notion of a people or of a, a culture. Um, I was disappointed in how like anthropocentric the book was. Right? There's no mention of non-human animals as aspects of our of our world as moral entities. There's no discussion of the environment as a moral entity, something that we should consider in our in moral contemplation. It's all just about individual human beings and their relationships to each other, like their wealth, their flourishing. And I, I find that disappointing because it conflicts with I think is like kind of the, the deep subterranean, you know, insight of cosmopolitanism, which is meant to be the fact that the kind of planet as a whole the world as a whole uh, should force us to think about the all the complex interrelations that the parts of the planet have and we are not on the planet by ourselves like we human beings are not the only things here and that what it means to be a citizen of the world 
right? Is to also think critically and have conversations about our relationship to other types of creatures, other types of life on this planet, including the planet as a whole, or right? as a kind of like an integrated system whose health deeply impacts our own health. We need a flourishing of something bigger, a bigger context than us in order for us to flourish. And so I think, yeah, again, the insight that a lot of cosmopolitans are drawing from in the history of philosophy is this kind of holistic conception of the world, that there's a mistake in thinking of us as these kind of isolated individuals, and that a culture is simply the aggregate of a bunch of parts, right? Um, there isn't really anything relevant about a bigger context like a, like a nation or, or a culture or the whole planet. But I think the cosmopolitan is flipping that around and saying like, no, let's start with the planet as a whole and notice that your value, your flourishing, your potential is actually derivative of the health of a bigger context, like a, like a planet, like a whole world. And so to be the citizen of the world is to recognize that relationship that you have a relationship to the whole and without a flourishing, healthy, stable whole, you're going to be in trouble. Right. And I think that is a moral claim at the core of cosmopolitanism. And it's something that in this book, it's completely neglected, unfortunately. All right. So the verdict is Kwame Anthony Apia is no holist and that is not to his credit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so with that, we will end this podcast. I feel like we have traversed a lot of ground uh, as a cosmopolitan would, and uh, we can just uh, wrap it up. We can put the bow on it and call it a day. Before we started this episode, I had a hunch that it would be a short one, and boy, was I mistaken. Yeah. Did they ever really turn out to be short, though? Yeah. Yeah. Listener, we've mm-hmm. given up doing short episodes. <laughs> yeah. In any case, listeners, stay tuned for future overweening pomposity but not on my part zach will do that Ooh. i'm gonna i'm gonna keep it real i'm from the midwest i'm proud of it <laughs> i speak plainly i speak directly i don't use five dollar words nothing highfalutin coming out of this kansas city boy's mouth all right let's get out of here let's see, all right bye bye